Welcome back to the Pregnantish podcast, where we have real talk about infertility and cover the incredible lengths people go to to create their families. Today's episode is presented by Two Plus Fertility, a comfortable and easy to use at home device that increases the chance of a sperm meeting an egg when you're trying to conceive. When you try naturally, less than 1% of sperm reaches the egg. Two Plus Fertility's goal is to fix that. For more, visit 2plusfertility.com. If you saw Chrisley Fernstrom on Instagram today, you'd see a woman going through infertility and egg retrievals, quote, hoping, praying, and waiting to become a mom. IVF Warrior is in her bio, along with TV host, movie critic, and Miss Rhode Island USA. She was also a contestant on The Bachelor. I would say the biggest thing that both going to Miss USA and being on reality TV and infertility, the biggest thing that is the same that's a negative is the feeling of you're not enough. The feeling of you're broken or the feeling of you're not going to get it or get picked or, or win or have your baby because you're not good enough. I think that was that's a huge thing that all three have 100% in common. And I think the first two prepared me for this one because I fought so hard for those. Chrisley, formerly known by her maiden name, Chrisley Kennedy, has been in the spotlight for years. In 2003, she was Miss Rhode Island, Miss USA, and went on to become a fan favorite. Some loved her, some even panned her in the popular Bachelor franchise. She captured Bachelor Charlie O'Connell's heart in season seven and became the runner-up and later joined the cast of the popular reality show spinoff, The Bachelor Pad. Now Chrisley is focused on a different reality, navigating the windy journey of infertility and IVF with her husband, who is 10 years her junior. Chrisley, I am so happy that you tagged us with a really powerful post during National Infertility Awareness Week so we could actually connect with you and find you. Welcome to the Pregnish Podcast. Thank you. You almost made me cry. I don't, it's not often you hear yourself talked about like that. <laughs> Aww, well, you know, I think like we're going to be delving into such an emotional topic. And I, I always say to others who don't understand infertility, we all have full lives outside of infertility, but infertility does become a part of so many of our identities along with all these other amazing things we do. And that's, it runs deep, right? It does. So, you know, I often like to ask a very broad question at the top of each episode, which is how do you describe yourself when someone says, hi, Chris Lee, who are you? <laughs> that is a, I usually answer with that is a loaded question and it depends on who you ask. If I had to describe myself, I'd say I'm extremely opinionated. I'm very stubborn and I'm the one person not to tell don't do something because I'm going to do it even if you tell me not to. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, and that's probably what, what helped you compete in the Miss USA competition is probably what helped you get cast for reality shows because that's the kind of you need to have a competitive will do anything attitude probably to be on those stages right absolutely you do for both sides it w which also helps you be the most hated person in America <laughs> <laughs> okay well let's talk about that because I remember <laughs> you from those years I you know I used to watch a bachelor 
I don't remember hating you, but I definitely remember you had attention. Why was that? I'm a call it like you see it kind of person. And from the first meeting of Charlie, I knew that him and I would be really good friends. And we kind of had this agreement that I was going to be his wingman. And when there were girls that were pretending to be one thing with him and another thing without him, I'd kind of call them out on that. So I was definitely the potster of the season. (laughs) (laughs) And what was that experience like? Like, how did you even get on to The Bachelor and and Bachelor Pad? So it was all very crazy. I had competed in Miss Rhode Island on a whim the first time. And then I saw the girl that won and kind of followed her throughout the year and saw the things that she had been able to do. And I had dropped out of college. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I didn't really know where I wanted to be when I grew up, but I knew kind of what I wanted to do. And I wanted to get paid to talk because it was the one thing that I was really good at. (laughs) And I had to figure out a way to do that. So once I competed that first year, I made some friends who talked me into competing the second year, which I won. And that year kind of brought me into this person that I didn't really know that I was. Uh, And I got to host a lot of events, but I was still bartending part-time. And ABC had a casting call at my bar. And I was the bartender that was at the bar where they were doing the interviews. And I I am very sarcastic and sometimes fresh. So when the girls were coming in and doing their interviews and they were giving these answers that were so bullshit, they just, you knew that they were full of it. I would laugh or I would make a comment. And unbeknownst to me, they had set up a camera to get my reaction to every interview. And they asked me if I had any interests. I said, no, I have a boyfriend. I live with him. Everything's great. And the producers kept in touch with me for about nine months. And that ninth or 10th month, the guy that I was living with cheated on me. And Mm. they happened to call a week later. And I was like, yup, get me out of Rhode Island. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So, So now you're getting onto this really popular reality show. That was season seven, right? So it had been on for a long enough that you knew and others knew about the show. How did it change your life, uh, just being a reality show contestant? So it definitely is way different now than it was then. There was no Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. So we definitely didn't get famous in that regard. Um, but it was strange. I come from a really small state where, you know, we all kind of know each other or we know somebody who knows someone. And it was definitely strange to be in like airports and other states and people know who I was or stop me and say, you look so familiar, but I can't place. And mm. then they would hear my voice. And as soon as they heard my voice, it was like, I know you. That was very strange. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can only imagine because, well, and you're, that's a really good point. Sometimes today, people go on to the reality show to become famous, right? So it's becoming a different reason for some to get cast and do that. But for you, did it open good possibilities for the most part? Or did it create other drama that you weren't looking for? Like, did it change your life in other ways? It did. So through being through it all, I after Miss Rhode Island, I had gotten a show on the local sports network, Nesson. Um, and then I had worked for Nesson directly and did pre and post game for the Red Sox for the season. We won the World Series for the first time back in the 03-04 season. And then after the show, I said... I'm done with this. I'm done with Rhode Island. I know what I want to do. I want to be a host. So I went out to LA and it gave me some contacts to get out there. And actually, oddly enough, my first job and my first apartment were found for me by none other than Charlie and Sarah. 
<laughs> and Charlie and Sarah were the, he gave the final rose to Sarah, correct? So you were a runner up in the end. Oh, correct. before we go into infertility, I need to hear about these rose ceremonies because, <laughs> you know, I endlessly, look, I've covered the dating relationship world for years as a journalist, and I maintain for years that Chris Harrison had the easiest job in television because <laughs> he would just constantly, he, actually, I've met him, really nice guy, but I, I, I would laugh at how often he did the same thing for so many oh, years and so many seasons. How many roses did, rose ceremonies did he host? Um, but what was that like? Like what, what, what happens during the rose ceremony? I know TV production. You're probably not there for five minutes, but can you go? Can you tell our audience about it? Oh my God, you're there for hours, literally like five hours. It's it seems like forever, and the whole time you're standing there, you're sweating, no matter how high the AC is, and you're nauseous for no other reason than it's like it's like the way that I equate it to is first of all, you're standing up there with however many girls that are all supposedly dating the same guy. So that makes it just horrible. And then there's this tension between you and the girls in the house, because even if they're your best friend, which the girl he picked over me in the end was, um, there was still a, he likes her better than me. There's a, there's a competition aspect to it, but then it brings you back to being a little kid. You don't want to be the last one picked. You don't want to be the one that isn't picked. So I think the biggest thing is, is people, People, whether it's the first rose ceremony or the last ceremony, people are like, oh, my God, she cried. She fell apart. I can't believe it. It's not just the feelings for the guy. It's the it's the not getting picked. It's the the self-esteem blow. There's so many different things. And you've been standing there for probably five hours and you've probably been drinking for those whole five hours. So there's a lot more to what you see. <laughs> yeah. And you're probably a lot of people are really young on that show. I mean, they're you know, 21, 22 years old navigating this. So on top of being there for five hours, competing for the same guy, feeling insecure, exhausted, you're like a 21 year old sometimes, right? Standing there. I was super young. I look back at it and it's funny. I, I, not that I've ever carried shame from, well, actually I did for the pageant, but not so much Bachelor, but I always kind of pretended I wasn't a part of it. Um, I didn't want to be known as Chris Lee from The Bachelor because I was so young. And if I had done the show at an older age, I wouldn't have done the stuff that I did as a kid. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, it is what it is. It's out there. I'm kind of glad my season is not able to be found anywhere, but you know, <laughs> I definitely learned from it. I grew. I don't do body shots on bars anymore. So that's a plus. <laughs> that's so funny. So, you know, you, you went on TV. It was a show about finding love. You had all this media and all these fans following your love life which must be really bizarre. Did you have pressure on yourself after that when you just dated and just went out there? No. So when I got off the show, I started dating seriously, a guy that I'd known from home. We moved to LA together. We ended up staying together for a really long time. In LA, when I first got there, I was bartending like everybody else because it is the hardest city in the world to live in, to make it in. And the turnover rate of people that go there is so low. I mean, they're coming in and they're coming out because they just can't afford it. And we stayed together for a really long time. And, and then, you know, it got complacent and comfortable and it was like brother and sister. And so we weren't together anymore. And I spent a lot of time being single. And I think that's the kind of 
thing that messes with my mind the most is being in LA. I had, I ended up having the job of my dreams. I was an entertainment journalist. I was covering films, movie premieres, interviewing some of the most amazing actors and directors and producers that the world has seen and making money at it and surviving. And I loved it. And so I was had been completely okay with, you know what? I haven't been lucky on the love front, mm -hmm. so I'm not going to try anymore. And LA is conducive to that. It's, it's conducive to not having a real relationship or a family or children. I mean, it, it kind of breeds a monster on you. And I think that's the thing that messes with me the most is that I spent so much time following my dreams, which I don't regret, and doing something that I absolutely loved and, and it being my decision. It was my decision not to, you know, pursue the relationship that I wanted because I didn't think it existed. And it was my decision to not be a mom. And that was a tough decision for me then because I think I was the only contestant at Miss USA who, when asked, they, they ask every single contestant in the interview process and every single girl was asked the same question. And it was, when you look back in your life in 10 years, what will be your greatest accomplishment? And you bet your bottom, every single one of those contestants said being Miss USA. And my answer was being a mom. And every single judge afterwards came to me and said, you're the only one that didn't say that. And you're the only one that said this. So that's how bad I wanted to be a mom. Um, but like I said, when it was LA, it was my decision. So it was very different. Wow, that's that's really powerful. So you've known since you were really little, you wanted that goal. And that's the hard part for so many women, uh, you know, th that these things can coexist. Great co career ambition on top of wanting to be a mom. And I know you don't have regrets over following that path, but you are connecting it, I'm sure, to your current experience. So I'd love to talk about that. I'd love to talk about how you met your, your current husband, where you met him, how that happens, and, and when you guys decided to try to start a family. So this part might get emotional. I had spent 40 years, I, and, I, and I hate to be that stereotypical girl because I'm so not. I always believed in the fairy tale when I was younger. And then as I got older and jaded and more cynical, it was like, yeah, guys like that don't exist. And I would read the books and fall in love with characters and say, you know, people write characters like these because there aren't any in real life. Mm -hmm. So we have to read about them or watch them in films. And, and that's kind of where I had been at for a long time. And two years ago, my little cousin was getting married. He gave me my family nickname. I changed his diapers. He is like a little brother to me and I couldn't be more excited to have been invited. So I came home, I went to his wedding and I hadn't seen so many of my family and friends for so long. And a couple of my friends were like, you know, what do I have to get you to do to stay in Rhode Island? And I was like, give me a bartending job for the summer. I'll stay just joking. And I got a bartending job. So I decided to stay for the summer and spent time with family and friends and had a great old time and then got to this place again where I was like, okay, I, I feel like moving back home is a step back from being in LA. I had been really sick in LA for a while, so I hadn't been working as much, but I wanted to start working again and it wasn't going to happen in Rhode Island. So I, 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 got in that place where I was like, okay, this isn't where I can stay. What's next? And about, 
I want to say August, September is when I decided that I would go back to LA at least, get my stuff because all my stuff was in storage at LA and my dogs were in LA. So I (laughs) said, you know, I might as well go back to LA, figure it out there and then take the next step. And on September 3rd, my husband walked into my bar. I had booked my ticket to come home to back to California and had no intention of staying and, and walked in this, and I'm five, seven. So anyone over six feet is impressive to me because <laughs> no one's ever taller and in walked in this six, six handsome boy. And I knew he was way too young for me. And he was charming and adorable and sweet. And I, thought that he was the biggest player in the world, left me his phone number. And I was like, okay, well, I got a couple weeks before I'm supposed to leave. Let's see. Let's just, you know, let's just feel it out. And I gave him, I gave him a really hard time for two weeks before I would let him take me out. And then I finally let him take me out. And uh, at the end of my, our first date, he picked me, like he picked me up like movie style and kissed me, which I've never seen done except on The Bachelor. And well, not I was going to say that. Did he think the ABC camera crew was there? That's hilarious. That's amazing. No, no. And I, in my season, it never happened because Charlie was too drunk to pick any of us up, by the way. <laughs> okay. um, so he picked me up movie style and kissed me and put me down and I went home that night and I said, I'm going to marry that boy. And it, I, I didn't really expect it to happen, but he was everything and more than I could have possibly dreamed in a man and in a husband and a best friend. Wow. And when was that September 3rd? How long ago? 2019. <laughs> it was okay. very recently. It was recent. Um, so so yeah. on your early dates and you knew pretty early once you finally caved and went on the date, you knew pretty early that he was the one. When did yes. you guys talk about family building and what did you imagine that to look like? Instantly. I jokingly asked him on our first date, like, you are 30 years old. What do you want with a 40-year-old woman? And his response, his answer was everything, which I now have tattooed on my shoulder because it it really was what he wanted. And we started talking really quickly about marriage and family. And we also knew that at my age, you know, it wasn't going to be easy. So why not try starting now, which we did. Knowing you want to have a family and then it may not come easily is something that's more and more common today as some people marry when they're considered, quote, advanced maternal age. Ugh, don't you love that term? To make matters harder, it turns out that less than 1% of sperm reaches an egg when you're trying to conceive at home. So I'm happy to share the sponsor of today's episode, 2 Plus Fertility which was designed to help solve this issue. Comfortable and easy to use, each device, which is as seamless as using a tampon, can be used up to four times a month. It's soft and comfortable, drug-free, and made of 100% medical-grade silicone. 2PLUS believes that every drop counts and encourages users to insert 2PLUS sperm guide before sex in an effort to stop sperm from flowing back out of the vagina post-sex. 2PLUS wants to bring as much sperm to the right place in the vaginal tract and create an experience that can be tried from the comfort of your own home or hotel room. Learn more about this product, which can be discreetly shipped to your doorstep by visiting 2plusfertility.com. And now back to Chrisley's story as she and her husband tried to conceive. 
By the time we were engaged, which was August of 2020, I had had two really early on miscarriages. And so we knew that I had talked to my regular gynecologist and he said, you know, you're at the age. He's like, you've had two early miscarriages. He's like, you need to go to a fertility specialist. He's like, I I can't help you at this point. You need to go to them. And we got married in October. And our first appointment with a fertility center was like a couple weeks after we got married. Mm. Yeah. So it's probably been a big part of your relationship in terms of, right? Huge. (laughs) How does that affect a relationship? I think the hardest part for me is feeling less than. I didn't tell anybody for a really long time. I didn't share publicly or openly for a really long time because I carried so much shame Mm -hmm. at the fact that I couldn't have children. And it, it, was horrifying. And there were so many questions at that point and unknowns. I think the hardest thing for him has been one, seeing me struggle and two, not getting the benefits of natural baby making, (laughs) (laughs) which I joke all the time, poor guy. (laughs) Well, you know, we've, we've talked a lot on the Pregnish podcast about procreative sex versus recreational sex. I think the only good side of when sex doesn't make baby, we can keep sex for just sex sake. Like that this is not with the pressure of conceiving. We are just trying to connect as lovers right now, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, not what everyone, listen, I'm trying to find a a really sad silver lining, but I do believe that sometimes (laughs) sex for sex sake when, when we're infertile can, is good. It's important. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, and, you, and you have to remember to do that because you, you forget. Oh, everybody does in this because it's like the last thing you feel like a lot of times when you're, you know, shooting up with hormones and you're tired and you're bloated and you're sometimes depressed and you're anxious. So I, you know, my background in giving relationship advice, I had to give myself that advice when I went through all the years of IVF and infertility to find non-fertile days to connect as lovers. Just like when I knew that we had a break from being at the clinic, I wasn't ovulating and now we're just gonna date, like get drunk, have fun, go out, just just connect. You have to, but you have to plan those things because otherwise this can and does totally consume couples. Oh, absolutely. It's hard. It's, I, I don't think I, I thought, you know, the testing was hard and the unknowing was hard and the shame was hard. And then we started IVF and it was like, whoa, <laughs> every step seems to get worse. I don't know how that's possible. Like you have so much hope, but then every step you're like, whoa, the last step wasn't so bad now. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so true. I, I've definitely had that. I'm sure like everyone listening is nodding with you. So what what is the woe behind IVF for you? So when we first started getting tested and came through, I was, I only had one functioning ovary and it just was not making eggs. It just, it was stagnant. So they gave me the choice of IUI and IVF and I didn't trust my body at all. I didn't want to do IUI because I felt like you're already telling me that my ovary isn't working and that I'm not getting eggs. So now you want me to trust that the same body that's not 
making the eggs that I need is going to do the work to get an egg. No, I was like, there's no way. So we, we went with IVF from the start. And before that we had done all the, I lived by an app. I took my temperature every day. I peed on so many ovulation sticks that I should have bought stock in them. Mm -hmm. Um, We did all that first. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we did all the aspects that we could do before we went this route. And we decided that IVF was what we were going to do. But I don't think that uh, it's, you know, it's one thing that I've learned going through this is no one knows how to navigate a conversation with somebody going through IVF unless they've gone through it themselves. And the other thing that I've learned is that IVF is not for the faint of heart. And a woman who's done it once or 20 times is my hero because this has been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I get it so deeply. And I know in your Instagram bio, before all these other amazing titles, you have really impressive titles like Miss Rhode Island USA. You have IVF Warrior first. Yeah. Is that yeah. why? It is. I actually got it tattooed on my back because I am a I am a tattoo person that when something is really meaningful and I want to be reminded of it every day. Um, and this is something that I need a reminder of every day because I think the hardest thing and the thing that you don't expect is what's going to let you down. You expect the big ones. You're going if you have a miscarriage, if you have a failed cycle, like there's certain things that you expect to have these huge, you know, emotions to. And then there's these things that you have no idea are going to throw you for a loop that will get you in bed for the rest of the day and not want you to leave that bed. And Mm -hmm. so I need that constant reminder every hour sometimes. That's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it for hopefully my little miracle baby. Wow. Yeah. I think I... I think people, and you're so right, people who haven't been through this specific experience don't understand the layers and layers and depth of, of sadness and and hope and everything else that's wrapped up that, you know, these conflicting emotions, like you wouldn't go through this if you didn't have hope, but it can be so easy to feel defeated constantly. And <laughs> you know, you're you're kind of manic. You're like, oh, I I'm totally hopeful today. I know it's never gonna happen the next day, you know. So after my failed my first failed cycle where my ovaries, I my I have one ovary that works and one ovary that doesn't, and the one that doesn't we call Darth Vader, it's the dark side. Oh. Um it's, you know, I'm, I'm a geek, so everything has to be uh, pop culture references. <laughs> so that's my dark side. That's where Darth Vader lives. Um, and it's so funny because, I mean, it's not funny. I We went through this whole thing and the cycle that the first IVF cycle that they put me through was where they throw your body into menopause first mm-hmm. and then jack you up with, with hormones. Manic is an understatement. The fact that my husband didn't leave me is mind boggling. I got put in time out, which I haven't gotten put in time out since I was a child. Time um, out by your husband? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He was like, and, and he was like, I think you need to go take a 10 minute time out in the bedroom and come out when you feel normal. Oh my God. That should be the movie poster for IVF, by the way. I'm telling you. And honestly, it was the best thing he did. And I laughed so hard when he said that to me, that it took me out of whatever tailspin I had been in at the moment. And it was like, he's really good at that, thank God. But he did, he totally put me in timeout. And then, you know, after all these drugs and all this time, cause you know, that protocol is so much longer cause you have to do the menopause first and you have to do this. And then we go to my egg retrieval and there's one stinking egg, mm-hmm. one. 
And I was just like, I kept reading. It only takes one. And I was oh, so everyone hopeful. says that. Everyone says that. Oh, it does not only take one. <laughs> I mean, technically, technically, yes, but for fertile people, it's like fertile people often say that. And then, you know, I guess it is the one miracle. Every child is probably a miracle. But when you go through endless drugs and treatment and hormones and they're matching the single best sperm out of millions, matching it with the the egg, the best egg, and it still doesn't work. You can't, can you even believe people naturally get pregnant? No. Like, I how does like that happen? I literally feel like everything they taught me in health class was a lie. Like, I can't even describe the feeling. Of, and I feel like a scientist because now I'm like mm-hmm. explaining to people how this all works. And and I feel like I have I could probably help someone else get pregnant at this point because I you just learn so much, more than any per- person needs to know. But I think what surprised me the most out of that cycle was that I had that one egg. They tried to fertilize, which we did not do ICSI the first time because it wasn't approved by the insurance because it was the first time, whatever. So we didn't do ICSI. So my egg did not fertilize. And I knew that that was probably 90% going to happen. Like the odds and the, the science, I mean, there was one, it was just the first time. Like I knew the odds were super low that it was going to work. What I did not expect was the profound sense of losing a child. Mm-hmm. I know in my head that it was an egg. It never fertilized. It never became an embryo, it, all of those things. And I did not expect the profound sense of losing a child at that point. And I did. And it was crazy. And I, I think things that helped me were sites like yours and, and knowing that other women out there felt the exact same way. Because I think that's one thing that we don't do enough when we're going through this is honor our feelings, no matter what they are, how ridiculous you feel, how sad you feel, or how happy you feel. I think learning to honor every single one of those feelings, no matter what they were, was really hard for me. But in the end has made me been able to laugh at things, which I think you so desperately need. No, I love what you said. I think I think it resonates so deeply with anyone who's been through this because an egg or an embryo is so meaningful because it's taken so much work for us to produce them and so much hope and belief in what they represent. And I don't think, again, like people who haven't been through it wouldn't understand that that was in your heart and mind, your future child that you were fighting for and loved. I I now believe you can love someone you've never met. I don't think I believed that before I went through infertility. I definitely didn't believe that before I went through infertility at all. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, why do we do all this? We do it for a love of a person we don't know yet, but we know should be in our lives. Yeah. Uh, Where are you now in your journey? You have found me in the midst of the two-week wait. I know, I know what that means. That is not fun. So our second round of IVF, we did not throw my body into menopause, thank God. And it was just 
just the hormones, which I say just, it's still a crazy amount. And when it came to my egg retrieval, we got seven mature eggs, which five of them were viable. We did ICSI this time. So with the ICSI, we got 100% fertilization, which we were not expecting, which was extremely exciting. And we did a three-day embryo transfer and we did four embryos. So, (laughs) (laughs) now I don't know that you're going to have quadruplets, but I know that's a possibility. But is it because at your quote unquote advanced age, they don't believe that all will lead to live births? Is that why they put in four? Because they're not tested? Yes, I did. I chose not to do the genetic testing on the embryos. I chose to kind of let it be. We both decided that as a couple that whatever happened, happened, and and our child would be our child. So they were doing four, uh, two of the eggs had, two of the embryos, I'm sorry, had developed really well and were doing really well and had already, you know, started dividing the way they're supposed to and were super close to being ready. And then two were right right behind them. So they felt that the other two would do better inside than in the little incubator. And they, because of my age and because they didn't do the genetic testing and because that those other two eggs were good, but they weren't amazing. I think they figured that the odds of hopefully at least one sticking were better with numbers. Yes. Wow. That's amazing. My sister actually has an IVF child who's now eight and they put three, I believe, three also not five day embryos and she has a beautiful, healthy child. And I... You know, I know that it all feels like a roll of the dice sometimes. So you just say, I got to have, I got to do whatever feels right in this moment, right? And it changes constantly. But did, how did you feel going into that? So going into the embryo transfer, I felt great. I knew that I had, you know, these four good embryos that they wanted to put back in. I, knew that the transfer was successful. I felt super positive and amazing. And then it set in that now I had to wait two weeks. Um, And this has been, like I said, every, so last time we never got this far, every time you find a new step with IVF or IUI or any kind of infertility, you're like, oh, the last part wasn't so bad. So I almost missed shooting myself with a needle three times a day. Now, for progesterone? No, so I'm doing the suppositories, which is a whole different monster, oh, by the yeah. way. I know. There should be like a special on underwear during that time. On underwear, on uh, going to stores, on wearing shorts, like <laughs> all of it. It's just, I swear to God, I feel, and this is uh, too much information, but we infertility sisters, we have, we share. Oh, it's yeah. like a constant tube of toothpaste being squeezed out of you. It's horrible. I know. The, the suppositories versus the injections is a constant source of conversation in the IVF infertility community because it's like the lesser of two evils. Neither is much fun and both have pros and cons. But again, we're doing it to prepare our body and hopefully stick embryo stick, right? That's the, yeah. that's the goal. How are you feeling now? What, what, I know the two week week is, <laughs> is crazy. So 
what I didn't, when we talked about earlier, uh, being manic at times, feeling like you're manic, that is an understatement to my two week wait. Every time I go to the bathroom, I panic that I'm going to see blood, which I'm peeing nonstop. So that's really helpful to have, you know, minor anxiety attacks every time I pee. It, every little cramp, I have uh, anxiety attack. I think, oh my God, this is going to be it. This is a miscarriage. Oh my God, this is over. I'll be scrolling through Instagram and I'll see some random thing and start bawling. And not just like a little emotional, like actually bawling. And about a hundred times a day, I feel like I'm 100% pregnant. And then a hundred times a day, I feel like I'm miscarrying. So it is the most uncertain and scary thing that I've ever experienced. Yeah, I, I totally get it. I, you know, I think like what's, what's so interesting about the two week wait for me was that it was harder than a lot of the weeks of shots. Like I thought the physical would be the hardest part of IVF. I didn't find the shots so bad. You know, I did 18 treatments over almost eight years. So I, I became really, they weren't all IVF. I did a bunch of IUIs, but I became like really blasé about the shots and other people starting IVF would be like, I'm so anxious about the shots. And it, exactly what you're saying, Chris Lee, because what you thought may have been like the hardest hurdle becomes not so bad. The shots are really not that bad. You have a little bruising, you put a little ice on it, big deal. The emotional weight. And we're talking about literal life here. Whenever right. people who, who don't understand or give blase advice about, um, well, you could just try again, or, you know, you could just do this, you could just do that. There's always that. Um, and they discount the weight. I often used to respond like, we're not talking about, you know, I don't know. Like, we're not talking about this little goal I have today. We're talking about life. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, the biggest value for, for me and so many people uh, to become a mom, the stakes are very high. And anything someone says to discount that just is like a dagger in the heart. It is. It's beyond a dagger in the heart. And I think the hardest thing to hear people say is they'll say when the time is right, it will happen. I'm 42 almost. The time should be right. I, I sometimes feel this profound sense of, I don't want to say punishment, but I've had this amazing life and done these amazing things that I'll look back on forever that people won't do that maybe they've only dreamt of it. And then on top of all that, I got my fairy tale. I got my happily ever after. I got my guy that's better than any book or movie. I got my best friend. I had the most beautiful, romantic, country, rustic wedding that you could have ever imagined. It was 100% out of a fairy tale or out of a movie. And, and then this happened. And there's this sense of, well, I got everything out, so you know maybe this one isn't going to happen. So when someone says, and they mean well, but when someone says, when the time's right, I don't know if anything breaks me more than that. Yeah, it it hurts. It hurts, and it's it's and like you said, people are well intentioned. They think they're helping. That's the strangest part of it. But the the nuances of an IVF treatment of infertility are 
like we've said, they run so deep. And if you haven't been through it and you're trying to give advice on what's going to work, it's just not going to be helpful. That's the PSA of today for anyone listening. I, right? It's just it not is. helpful. It it, you know, it's funny. My, my, my little cousin, he's a nurse and he texts me and said, you know, I, I, I don't know how to navigate this conversation because I'm a nurse. So I think medically, he's like, but I want you to know that I'm here for you. I love you. And whatever you need, you can tell me anything. And that was perfect. Like if every person knew just to say, you know what, I love you. I'm thinking of you. I'm here if you need me and I will just listen and not give advice, then it would be so much more wonderful. And I think that's what's another reason that's made me share. Yeah. I want to share because I want some woman to see my post and not feel the way that I did. And maybe that helps her share or tell her friends or feel less alone, period. But also for the people that have not gone through this and they want to call you immediately and tell you about their friend's sister's cousin's daughter who went through IVF and, you know, they want to tell you all these stories. and, And, you know, I think what people don't understand that haven't been through it is every IVF story is different. Every single one. So what happened to your friend's cousin, sister's daughter is wonderful. And I'm so glad they got their miracle. But I guarantee you that there's no way that her situation was identical to yours. Every body so- is different. I mean, we, we should know that, right, intellectually. But it's totally true. People think it's one size fits all. And they think they're helping you again with the, the tip of what, what will right. work. Go to this, try this thing, try this food we make ourselves crazy. So now, so now you're out as IVF warrior and how has that changed your life? Are you connecting with this community in a way that's meaningful to you? I am. I was shocked at how many people I knew that emailed me when I started talking about it and messaged me and said, you know, my daughter is an IVF baby or I went through this many failed IVF. Like I was shocked at how many people I knew and I and I know their children, and I had no idea that they went through this. That's I think was the most shocking thing to me, um, and what made me want to talk more, because I just thought of all those people that I know and had no idea that they were having this battle. Full, I mean, this is a full on battle when you're going through IVF, and they didn't tell anyone, and. And I didn't know, and I wouldn't have known what to say, but I would have wanted to know that they were going through that. I would have wanted to, you know, be aware at least, because I think that's, that's important. And, and it's been wonderful to hear other people's stories. It's been wonderful to find sites like yours and other ones that make me feel less crazy. They make me laugh completely. And, and then, then to hear stories and to, to, want to do better and want everyone else to do better. You know, this episode is called From Reality TV to the Reality of Infertility. I think there's something really interesting about all the battles you were fighting on the stages of, you know, of these shows, of the competition, and now this this one. What is similar about being on reality TV and going through the reality of infertility? I would think, I would say the biggest thing that both 
going to Miss USA and being on reality TV and infertility, the biggest thing that is the same that's a negative is the feeling of you're not enough, the feeling of you're broken or the feeling of you're not going to get it or get picked or, or win or have your baby because you're not good enough. I think that was that's a huge thing that all three have 100% in common. And I think the first two prepared me for this one because I fought so hard for those. Wow, that's so interesting. I I totally see how that's similar with just just pick me, just pick me egg, just pick me embryo, just implant mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. you said praying, hoping, waiting in one of your posts, which is which just captures it all. Is there anything else you want to add? You have to be kind to yourself for the women who are listening that are going through it. I think no matter what the outcome of my two-week wait, I have to remember that. And it's hard because I think about every day that there's these four little M babies praying that one of them picks me to be their mom. And if they don't, I have to remember to be kind to myself. And I have to remember that it's not my fault and that the science just didn't work this time. And, and that's a hard thing for me. I'm really good at making jokes. I'm really good at laughing things off. I'm really good at putting up this wall and being this tough person that looks like it's not affecting. But the praying, hoping, and the waiting and the insecurities of that, they're hard. And, and you have to be kind to yourself. And you have to be okay to say no. I think that's the one thing that's been really hard for me through all this is baby showers, birthday parties, cookouts, being around babies and people. Sometimes I just couldn't. And, and I had to learn how to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without guilt. It's really hard mm-hmm. for w- many women, but it's it, it's part of the self-care that we need to exercise when we're going through the hardest experience many of us have faced. Thank you so much for sharing your voice, your story, your advocacy, because this to me is you stepping in as IVF warrior, stepping in to be a role model for others who are listening and just don't aren't ready to share, don't know what to expect. I mean, it's just really powerful. Yeah, I hope it helps someone find some peace and hopefully make them laugh. Yeah. yeah. Well, we are called pregnant-ish after all, so we can't always take ourselves too seriously. Chris Lee, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Pregnant-ish podcast, where we cover the amazing lengths people go to to create families, often against the odds. Until next time.